Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the One Deeper Podcast. Today we're talking about something we all love and need, food, but with a twist. We're looking at it through the lens of our senses, our evolutionary history, and the role our environment has on our food choices. Joining us is Rachel DeVries, a postdoctoral researcher at Tilburg University who knows a thing or two about how our food choices are influenced by more than just hunger. We're going to talk about how everything from the smell of a pie to the way food is presented can sway our decisions. It's not just about what us, what's on our plates, it's about the whole sensory experience surrounding it. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rachel DeVries. Yeah, okay, that's good. great. It's good. It's good. Yeah, I've been good. Um, it's good to see you. And uh, yeah, thank thanks you. for having me. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for like doing do this. Because uh, like um, this is where like um, like I do a lot of AI cognitive science stuff, mm-hmm. right? But I haven't had a chance to like because um, this is something like the field, like the kind of things you're studying, is stuff that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But it's not like my professional thing. So yeah. I haven't had it, had it, had it, had a chance to like sort of bring them together. Yeah. So I'm very curious as to like um, how you think about this stuff. And uh, yeah, sure, I'm I'm ready to answer whatever questions. I well, mean, yeah, like like I I I, I want to talk about the one study, um, the <laughs> um, the special memory, the special memory mem- memory one. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. But like, just like, how did you get involved in this? Like, first of all, no one knows much about <laughs> what we're talking. About, what we're talking Who are about. you? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? So, yeah. like, yeah, what are you? What what exactly are we talking about here? Like, um, in terms of um, the, the, the the study I just mentioned and like your yeah, research. Yeah. So maybe indeed a bit of context about yeah. me. So yeah. I'm a postdoc at um, Tilburg University, the Department of Communication and Cognition. And before this, I completed my doctoral research. So I got my PhD in Wachtinger, um in the area of eating behavior and sensory science so it's sensory science is really about how you perceive the world through your senses always in relation to food obviously because food is really i guess food is my cup of tea (laughs) 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 and yeah just eating behavior just um kind of detangling why people eat or choose to eat what they eat that really fascinates me so my entire sort of work trajectory research trajectory is really centered around that question i would say nice yeah and then of course you have this technology um very interesting technology integration into trying to solve like help help some of these problems with vr Um, How are you, like, how does that play in? Yeah, so um, this VR tool, we're going to develop that early next year. So it's really an integration, I would say, of the sensory sciences, eating behavior. So we're trying to incorporate the sense of olfaction or or smell into a VR environment. And in order to be able to really simulate a naturalistic or highly realistic food environment, right? Mm. So these are environments in which we typically make food decisions like a supermarket. And if we manage to do that and we can develop this infrastructure, we can perhaps use it as a research tool to really study people's food decision-making processes in a highly naturalistic and non-invasive way. So it's really a tool to better understand, I would say, the fundamental fundamental mechanisms driving mm. our food choices. That's interesting. Like, I never thought of what Albert Heijn smells like. like <laughs> I, but like I do, there's this one interesting anecdote. So back home, I used to live uh, in this apartment building. that yep. was uh, It faced the ocean, but it was downwind from a bakery, right? And that was a that was like 
the best worst situation like it's amazing because every morning it smells so good but every morning yeah. it's like holy shit it smells so good yeah like it was like uh, that was an interesting experience. it's funny that you mentioned that because this is like the stereotypical example given to people when they talk when when they're asked to imagine like the influence of smell on their eating behavior yeah. like a bakery is the prime is example that of that yeah. yeah and oftentimes yeah i mean i guess i can ask you the question like what were the thoughts or did you notice anything about your thoughts or your feelings at that moment when yeah you, like uh, whenever that whenever it happens it's like for me it was uh, more than wanting to eat it was like because i because I, i associate the smell of bread mm -hmm. with comfort mm -hmm. and like security and feeling like like just like being taken care of because mm -hmm. like that's usually w w what my mom would give me when i'm like sick or like when i'm had, had a long day like at school or like that was like the go-to thing like w warm like bread yeah right? and it was more like not like oh i want to go get some bread i did but it's more like oh man this feels really nice feeling of pleasantness yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I love that that food is has, you know, it's more than just a utilitarian thing, right? Mm -hmm. Food is so central to different cultures. I grew up in mixed cultures as well. I come from, um, yeah, my dad is Dutch, my mom's from the Philippines, but I grew up in uh, Indonesia. And in one of those, and every one of those cultures, like food is really what unites people. And yeah. I actually, I, I would say I fell down this rabbit hole of food research, besides the fact that I knew I was fascinated by food since a very young age. I, it was actually a, a paper written by Paul Rosen, which is, um, he's, a, he's a very famous, um, I would say, food anthropologist. Right. And I read a paper in my bachelor's um, about the law of contagion and it's the fact that you know in many cultures implicitly it's understood that you take on the properties of the food that you eat so for example they tell you you know eat your vegetables right, or eat a particular right, yeah, vegetable yeah, yeah. because it'll make you uh, grow taller yeah. or, or stronger or whatever and yeah. those are implicitly also the properties of the food that you eat or they you know in some cultures they tell you like stay away from eating specific foods mm -hmm. because you don't You know, you don't want to get bad yeah. properties. Yeah. Like for me anyways, like <laughs> it's kind of a gross example. But growing up, like it was quite encouraged to eat like the brains of animals oh, yeah, because yeah. they would make me smarter. Marty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you probably recognize that yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my mom has all kinds of things on this. Like yeah, <laughs> for sure. She's like, yeah, don't eat this. Make it, like, it'll cool your body down. I'm like, what does it mean cool? Like, what do you mean? Like temperature? Or like, like, uh, like, no. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. But like they're like, I definitely... Um, Uh, have uh, those experiences like um okay i was not like uh, so uh, one thing one thought that like that was that i kept thinking about after like mm -hmm. saw the i saw the project and saw your work and i was like uh our environment is different from let's say a yeah. an, our ancestral uh, ancestral more like our let's say what's the way to, like i want to say priest paleolithic pre paleolithic that's yeah. the word yeah. right okay environment our environment is different in a lot of ways yeah. like for example it's warm like we have lights but it seems to be very different specifically in terms of the access we have to calories. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like, I realized the other day, uh, the density of, like, Albert Hein, if you take Albert Hein, mm -hmm. and as a geographic location, the amount of calories per square, per square meter, like, that's like an anomaly in historic time, right? Think yeah, about, definitely. Think, think about, like, like, Where, at what time in history, as you're evolving, would you have found that many calories in one place that accessible? No, it's it's very unprecedented. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about, like, what the ancestral human diet looked like, you know, and that's why yeah, hypes like... Right 
Yeah, yeah uh, hypes like um, the Paleolithic diet yeah. and stuff. I really don't believe in that, by the way. Yeah, but that's yeah. how they kind of stemmed from. Yeah. But I do think one thing that does come from the literature and a lot of anthropologists and stuff agree on as well is the element of seasonality. So right, seasonality yeah. was a major determinant of what types of foods were available, how long they were available. Um, and yeah, I think generally, because you kind of have seasonality, you have, um, I would say, ancestral food environments are characterized by periods of, um, how do you call it? Uh, fl- yeah, fluctuations in... Yeah, like... like, like, like feast and famine. Feast and famine, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah. So, you know, in, in periods in which food was available, then you, you kind of were stimulated in order to be able to survive, of course, yeah, periods... Yeah. Uh, to buffer uh, periods of, I would say, famine. Yeah. If food was available, you would have to eat it. And, um, yeah, especially high-calorie foods at that time were very valuable because of the fact that, you know, it, back then foraging was the only manner of acquiring food. Right. So, you know, you had to expend a lot of energy. Uh, peop- um, yeah, ancestral human, um, how do you call this? Ancestral human, <laughs> humans? Yeah, humans. Yeah, they, they basically were characterized um, by environments of high metabolic output. So, right, right, you, right. you know, they were very physically active. They had to forage in order to get sufficient nutrition. So if they came across a potentially valuable high-calorie food, let's say like a fig tree, Mm -hmm. uh, we hypothesize, and that's kind of the basis of the spatial memory bias work, is that it kind of conferred a survival advantage to those who remembered where this fig tree was located. So, for example, that if uh, the season was there in order to harvest the fruit, let's say, that they would be able to efficiently navigate back to that location and get those um, uh, high-calorie resources. What do we know about how like your early developmental environment affects um, your like do you know anything about like how f- how you grew up and ho- what your early experience in life how 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 does that how that impacts how th- the decisions you make in with regards to food yeah i think there's a lot of great work i'm not an expert in this but i can yeah just from the top of my head you know there's work showing for example in the dutch hunger winter in which in the netherlands it was already yeah, there was a period of famine in, in, in the winter and there was not a lot of food for a lot of people. Um, they found that women who were pregnant during that period actually gave rise to epigenetic changes in, in their um, their offspring, oh, their wow, kids, yeah, yeah. that um, altered their met- metabolic state or the metabolic responses to specific foods. So right, yeah. I do think, yeah, early environments, prenatal environments and everything, that's very important for development. Mm. Um, I'm not an expert on that yeah, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I definitely think through things like epigenetics, I could have an influence no i have this uh, like so i i struggled with uh like eating well and just like maintaining my body weight properly for a long time yeah and you know i had to think about like different strategies to help me do this and what i realized was like okay the best thing for me is like control my control the environment i'm in like my, my in my where i'm living my apartment like make sure i have certain things i don't have certain things yeah uh, let me know when you. When I, I'm just gonna keep talking because oh, you need to let me know when. No, no, no. Uh, it was a uh, beeping. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. It's still right. fine. Um, and you know, like something weird is like I don't know where I got this from, but like I think it might have been from like my mom was always like, "Hey, you gotta f- eat everything on your plate." Yeah. Right. And I don't know what it is, but like, um, I have this. I have this tendency where it's like if it's there. Like on my plate, I gotta eat it. Yeah, I gotta finish it, right? Yeah. Like I, I, sh- I don't leave anything behind. Also, like, you know, there was a time like when I was like when I was really young that we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot. Like, so it was like um, you eat when you could eat, right? And like when you had food to eat. So it's like 
I don't know. So I had to find ways to con- to shape my environment to do things. So now in my apartment, it's like I have stuff that I eat every day. Yeah. And then like, I don't, I, like I'm not the kind of person who can like cook for the week and leave it in the fridge. Yeah. It's never going to happen. I'll eat that in like two days. Like it'll just disappear. So anyway, I'm, I'm very curious about um, this VR project and how you think it'll help people with their food behaviors in terms of like, Whatever, what do you hope to what do you hope to get f- help people do with this yeah so i guess it's like what i said before it's not really we're like the ultimate aim is not to develop a product to okay. sell or yeah, anything yeah, like yeah, that it's really yeah. just to validate this multi-sensory vr infrastructure for use and further research right, and right. you know we're also very interested in using this technology to better understand the high calorie spatial memory bias mm-hmm. So the fact that people automatically or implicitly prioritize the locations of high-calorie foods versus low-calorie foods, you know, even despite things like how much they like a food, how familiar they are with it, we even replicated this high-calorie spatial memory bias in different cultures. Right, right. So the the Um, food you showed them was like, so was it like textually they t- how 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 would they how how how, would this, how was it conveyed to them that this is a high calorie versus a low calorie? Oh, it's just regular stuff that you would recognize, oh, okay, right? Okay. So like high calorie foods would be like potato chips and yeah. chocolate. Low calorie yeah. foods would be like fruits and vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, of course, people have to recognize it and yeah. be familiar that something is high or low calorie. Um, where was I going to go with this? Yeah, so. Um, we could, for example, simulate a supermarket where, you know, high, different high low calorie foods are distributed at different locations within the supermarket. And we can also inf- uh, yeah, in, um, see whether people would be more accurate at remembering where the high calorie foods were in the supermarket compared to the low calorie foods right, with right. the addition of scent, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Like... I'm 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 quite fascinated about like about the like the evolutionary implications of this. Like, I mean, obviously, like when you say when you say it like this, it makes sense. Of course, of course, you want to remember where, where, uh, where where you found the most calorie dense food mm-hmm. at, at at any given time because it's such a scarce yeah scarce thing. I'm really interested about how like, curious about how things that are so adaptive behaviors that were so adaptive in in a certain environment some time ago all of a sudden are, com- are in, in, in intensely maladaptive for many people. Yeah, right? and I think you bring up a really good point about this earlier on. It's really about the interaction between the individual, our biological evolutionary predispositions, however you want to call it, and the environment in which they operate. Because obviously this is a this is a mechanism. It was it's maladaptive now in the current obesogenic food environment, mm. but back then it was super adaptive, yeah, and therefore yeah, yeah. potentially that's why it got selected for throughout millennia yeah. of evolution yeah, of course it's very difficult to prove that this is an evolutionary artifact yeah, i think yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i don't even know how to begin proving that but okay. i do think we have enough empirical evidence to kind of rule out alternative mm-hmm. more like learning based um, yeah like paradigms. We, we mentioned about uh, seasonality is interesting like we had this like we have this fast uh, we have this feast, fa- and, famine. feast and famine be- yeah. behavior right and now uh, one of the so one of the biggest problems i would say in terms of uh, what kills you, what 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 causes the mortality? I would say mm-hmm. so. Type two diabetes is like mm-hmm. up there, mm-hmm. and that and the pathway to type two diabetes is insulin insulin resistance, right? Basically, mm-hmm. for, pe- uh, for if you don't know, people who are listening is like uh, when you have a constant uh, a side effect of co- having constant access to food is that you're constantly eating, which is and that means there's a constant level of glucose in your blood bloodstream, and your body is constantly releasing a certain level of 
insulin into your blood mm-hmm. and then your body gets insensitive mm-hmm. over time to insulin mm-hmm. and then eventually you start to start taking insulin outside and like you said because if you don't have seasonality like you can get blueberries and bananas and and also people are like oh that's healthy food. i don't know about this this healthy unhealthy things kind of is ridiculous like you have to talk about specific things about okay like everything is eventually glucose like apples are glucose like fruit bananas are glucose like i don't care how you have them anyway sorry same tangent <laughs> uh we don't have seasonality anymore right you, you can always get bananas yeah. you can always get cookies you can always get uh, whatever it is you want from the thing and you're, and you're constantly eating and we don't like and from a evolutionary perspective the human body had to have like we wouldn't have survived if we couldn't have gone like a, lo- a long period of time without eating anything but you, to my friends like who I, I do intermittent fasting i've been doing it for a long time for people who are like so i i usually eat one i just eat once a day and i've been doing it for a long time it's been more than anything the, the only reason i've been doing it is it's it, it helped me maintain my body, my physique it's the only thing that worked for me and it's awesome but for people who i say like yo just keep two meals they're like no like like it's hard like like i i know people who have who have, who have, who have, a, have a visceral fear reaction to the idea that, that they have to eat, not eat for a day yeah which is the, which is totally doable it's not like it's not that hard right? yeah i think one of the things that also came out from this work um is that you know, there are huge differences between individuals when it yeah. comes to how they react towards certain food or how they, you know, their cognitions and, and behaviors in relation to to eating. So, indeed, like, it could definitely work for you, but I, I definitely don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all yeah, sure. yeah. uh, strategy. Yeah. And what we also see with regard to the bias is, like, yes, the general trend across people, across cultures, is that people do have this sort of an automatic prioritization prioritization in their memory for high calorie versus low calorie food locations but they're graded differences between people mm. right so um qualitatively qualitatively it's a yes scenario where people have the bias the bias is present it's expressed right. but there are quantitative differences between people to the degree in which this bias is expressed and we found that actually those with a greater expression of the bias they also have t- tend to have a higher bmi which is a mm. anthropometric marker for yeah, I would say overconsumption. It's not a perfect marker for yeah, overconsumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's heavily influenced by things like muscle mass. Yeah, so technically, I'm obese if I, yeah, if, if yeah. I do a BMI score. But I think on a population level, oh, it's it quite a, sure. yeah, 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 it's, it's quite yeah. an accurate marker. Yeah. No, like, um, this is a good problem to have in, one, in, in like in some sense, right? Like, we, we're, we are in a situation where we, there's just plenty of food, but not everywhere in the world. Yes. Uh, there, like obviously, there are places in the world where this is not the case, which yeah. which is not great, and that should be addressed. Yeah. But for more, for like the develop for for, for um, and for more of the developed world, and increasingly more f- more for more parts of the world over over the years, as we progressively get better at producing food, this uh, fact of like over and over. Also, I'm curious. Also, like is. I've read. I've read. I've seen a few 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 uh, studies uh, where it's like. Even if you just introduce a standard American diet, which is sad, <laughs> right? To like people who <laughs> like, even if like to just like, for example, Inuit uh, population, mm-hmm. they immediately start getting uh, insulin resistance. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's like, which is so it's, like, it's such a, like, I, for something that, I, for all the things that humans do every day, 
in terms of a field that's studied, I feel like nutrition is just a, it's like a, like, I guess it's hard to run experiments, right? How do you run like long-term experiments on a puppy on a on a? Oh, it's uh, it's been done. I mean, yeah. maybe it's also just my bubble, but I feel like there are really lots of great nutrition centers oh, yeah, and yeah, institutes yeah. and yeah. lots of great research being done. So, actually, on your point about like yeah, if you put an Inuit population on a, an American diet, I think there was this study. I don't know when it was conducted, but I remember learning about it as a master's student when I was studying nutrition, um, where they actually followed, I think, people from. Japan, who migrated to America, and they followed them longitudinally, and they also did it, they followed longitudinally the the opposite direction, so I would say Americans who, I I think, moved to Japan, and they actually did find the resounding conclusion that the environment has such a big impact on your long-term trajectory, your dietary pattern, right? Mm. Um, Yeah, so I think it just boils down to the fact that you 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 eat because you eat what is available you eat what is around you you eat what is considered normal what is socially prescribed there's also huge social norms involved in eating yeah yeah i mean eating is such as eating without eating is, is such a social thing like you do yes you, like it's such a big part of our all of our most important social interactions like yeah. eating together and also food. back then like if we're talking about evolutionary pressures and selection pressures and stuff um you know we sh- food sharing was so integral to societies way 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 back then yeah, because that yeah, was also yeah. a form of survival so yeah. it's so intrinsic actually sharing food and yeah so environment is more than just the food around you, it's the people and... Uh, 100%. And the you're talking you. to, yeah, you can talk about a social environment, so it's your peers, um, your colleagues, your, your home environment. Yeah. It also differs at which life stage you're on. For example, adolescents, they tend to strive for autonomy, yeah. so their social networks would mostly be important for peers, but yeah. if you're younger, then the social network is mostly at home. Yeah. But definitely the physical environment, um, your supermarkets, yeah, any places that you can find uh, food and you make decisions about food, the gas station, the market. What are some things that makes 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 making good decisions? Okay, this is hard. <laughs> this, is like, very this, this is very hard. Also, like people will be like, oh, what's a good food decision? But like, okay, let's just avoid the tech details. But like, what makes it hard for people to make like reasonable decisions? Like say, not eat this versus that. Like, are there like things that are particularly difficult? that particularly make make this uh, make this a minefield to navigate for people yeah i think it's just that food choices it, they're for such a simple thing they're driven by so many different factors you're talking about multiple layers of different factors that feed into this one moment of food choice yeah. right so I mean, we mentioned some things like the physical food environment the social food environment things like price um the, the specific unique values you attach to things like health and price and all these different things the context that you make the food decisions in is it a supermarket or is it a a, a restaurant setting like are you hungry while you make the food decision your nutritional state 100 percent. like like don't go to the supermarket while you're uh, hungry that's 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 like isn't that like like standard advice to people is like don't go and i think oftentimes when people talk about uh, you know self-control issues it's really you know the the sort of prototypical example is i know i shouldn't be eating that cookie but i find it so difficult to beat that impulse so i'm gonna go eat that cookie yes self-control failure can be because you 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 know you fail to inhibit some sort of impulse or whatever but oftentimes people also just 
consciously license themselves to that piece of to that piece of cake or a cookie because they feel like they they deserve it or it's right, a reward right, right, for right. something right, right, right. and i think what's really fascinating about food choices is that people balance these values all the time right so when you're talking about um, health price taste convenience these are all important values that take place or are weighted to some degree in our food choices but depending on who makes them and in which context somebody makes somebody from one time point to another, the weights attached to those different values can be very different. Right, right, right. Yeah, like so. It's such a dynamic, such a dynamic process, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're there, like yeah, the the value you attach to A versus B changes not just between people but temporally as you as, as, you, as you go through the day. And yeah. You, like you, as you as the day goes on, we know it's harder and harder to make good make decisions like you, you, you get, uh, you're more tired you don't, like at the end of the day you go back like uh, i find that at the end of the day it's hard for me to say like i'm gonna make a reasonable food decision then like maybe i'm yeah maybe because you feel like hey i'm gonna reward myself for a hard day of work i'm yeah. gonna reward myself to some a burger or yeah. some kfc i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Man, <laughs> you I know i would have kfc in years but yeah i, I feel you <laughs> yeah yeah but um like uh so like for for me in terms of uh, of course everything's everything's like anecdotal right so i can't really make make any, mm-hmm. make any uh, general 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 claims i find willpower is a poor strategy in terms of trying to make sure i eat what i have what, what i should eat mm-hmm. it's like i i need to sort of pre set up everything so that when it comes to the point where i have to make a decision it's already insanely biased towards making the decisions that i want <laughs> than actually like saying oh yeah, yeah I'm that's gonna, smart yeah, you make I'm it super convenient it. to make the healthier uh, yeah, decision yeah, yeah. yeah i think that's uh it's a good strategy but not everybody has the time and effort i guess or motivation to do that yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. like Remember me, like how did you like why why wh- why this why this why why? Is, why why is this like a thing that you wanted like you decided to spend your life trying to understand? Yeah, so I think it's because it's always going to remain some sort of challenge. Yeah, um, we're only really starting to scratch at the surface now about I would say the whole temporal dynamics, the spillovers of food choices, you know, and I think that's super fascinating just from a a personal point of view. Yeah. But I also feel very passionate about contributing in some way to a healthier future and not to mention also more sustainable because if you prevent overconsumption of calories, it's also more sustainable in the sense that you have you just have to produce less calories, right? You don't have to produce so many calories that's is, uh, that's um, much more than what one individual needs to consume a day. Yeah. So um, in a way, I think you can tackle both healthy and sustainable food choices quite well not always it's not a one-to-one ratio but you can tackle them quite nicely together yeah Hmm. and food systems are definitely at a threat you know i think by the year 2050 we're going to really have issues feeding everybody yeah on the planet so i this is a very relevant issue for me and one that i feel really grateful that i can work on that's yeah for sure yeah um so looking ahead what are some of like some questions that you want to try and answer like maybe like uh, in the next few years because you're working on this VR thing now? Yeah. You uh, worked on this. You're doing a postdoc postdoc right now. Yeah, I'm doing my postdoc on digital nudges. So the more intervention yeah. side about yeah, it's because the VR and stuff, the spatial memory, it's quite fundamental about why do we choose the things that we f- the foods that we eat. Yeah. What are sort of the driver psychological processes underlying that? Yeah. And then my postdoc project is really centered on um, 
the intervention side about how can we promote healthier food choices in an online setting. So we're right. working with a digital intervention called Nudges yeah. um, that we actually personalize based on people's characteristics. So for example, like I said, the, the values, so health versus price, if you're more health driven versus price driven, we can personalize Nudges to highlight those aspects of mm. a product. Um, whether you're more visually or verbally inclined as well. So if you prefer processing images over text, we can also personalize or tailor nudges based on those kind of characteristics to, you know, to, to, it, to ease the processing right, of right. those messages. That's interesting. Like, so yeah. uh, whenever I'm in like Albert Hein and, and I want to make a decision on what, what to buy it. So I find that like asking the question, what, what do I want to eat right now? Is, is, is usually like, I find, I find it very hard to answer. But I, but if I ask it, if I ask myself, okay, what do I need to eat right now? Then it's like, and then it becomes easier because then I think, okay, I need this, I need, I need. This. I was like, I, I usually it's like, okay, I was, just, I, I just did a huge, huge weight training session for like two hours, and I should probably get some, get some carbs, get some, get like, get a decent amount of protein, and I don't need that much fat right now, like, I just, because I, I don't want to spend all day trying to trying to digest all that, so it's like. That makes it easier, easier problem to solve. So, mm -hmm. like, then the food is directed at solving a certain. It's very utilitarian. Yeah, solving yeah. a certain problem yeah. instead of like trying to satisfy a more this, hedonic goal. Yeah, this, this, yeah. this nebulous thing of what do I want to <laughs> eat right now? Yeah, what would make me feel good? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but then, uh, yeah, food choices. I think people are just more irrational in that sense, yeah. you know. So. There's this whole idea of uh, in behavioral economics that, um, you know, uh, humans are, uh, I forgot what the Latin word was, but do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the Latin word yeah, for like... like the, the, the whole, oh, oh, like... Are you talking about the like homo economicus or something? Right, thank you. That was yeah, it. Yeah, that yeah. you're able, it, that we work basically like computers yeah, where we're yeah, able yeah, to yeah. come up, like our outcomes are really uh, a sum of its parts yeah. if we really break it down. But that is not what you see in practice, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So I doubt that such a weighted calculation would work for most people yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in all circumstances. Yeah, the, the, individual, dif the individual difference is, is the killer here. Right? Yeah. Because like, like you're, you're, you're shaped not just by your environment, but your history, like your history, the kind of person you are, your, your personality, the things you like to eat, like yeah. what you, all these, all these we're different a, things. We're, every one of us is a walking mosaic of all of those components. And, yeah. But I think the beautiful thing about, uh, which makes it on one hand very difficult to come up with a strategy that can fit all, but I think the beautiful point of it is this whole health prevention paradox, right? It's that if you just um, look at the, tackle the, uh, on a population level, smaller changes, uh, just small changes on each individual level can amount to really fantastic, significant yeah, sure. impacts on the greater level. And I think that that's what we can realistically aim for. Right. So not just, for example, we, we do see you know, in a lot of meta-analysis and stuff that their effect sizes tend to be quite small. So they're very helpful, but you know, the, the degree to which they actually help you make healthier food choices might be smaller than... I don't know, like Ozempic, which is <laughs> going <laughs> to drop down your weight like crazy. Is, I don't know what that is. What oh, that is. yeah. Just like, let's say a medical drug, oh, let's okay, say, okay, okay, or that, that okay. expresses your appetite or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. But on a population level, now just do what they're exactly, exactly what they're supposed to do, which is create an environment in which people are autonomous, autonomously yeah. able to make healthier decisions sustainably at a smaller scale. Yeah. But over a long period of time, that would amount to a great impact. I gotta, I gotta admit, like, I hate, I hate nudges. I, I, <laughs> I hate the idea of, like, 
like of course of course the environment the all your, your entire environment is a nudge like everything is sort of built there is a choice architecture yeah, there's, there's a choice, choice choice architecture like the build the way the way buildings built uh-huh. the way your supermarket is arranged the way the roads are built everything's a nudge everything pushes you in certain directions but like I, like i i score on like the 95th percentile of di- of in uh, dis- dis- disagreeableness so like I don't know. Something about it annoys me. Like the idea that, <laughs> that, that, that someone's like, like you know, wants me to like you know, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, like on the stairs on Dante, they're like the calorie yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I get so mad. I'm like, no, yeah. like, like, wha- like, like one time I was like, no, I'm gonna take the lift just to spite this. Like, just no, I love that. You know, because I also take that. I want to investigate that mechanism. This, this, this whole idea of reactance, right? Yeah, and yeah. reaction, reactance actually stems from individual differences and their need for autonomy and their and their need to feel like they can determine things themselves it's all postulates of self-determination theory but even like i I can kind of assure you that in in studies in which they actually explicitly measure like a nudge's acceptance even if you stratify the population based on things like need for autonomy um i think oftentimes nudges score poorly when people don't experience it themselves so they actually base it on their expectations of what a nudge does Mm -hmm. But in studies in which somebody actually does experience a nudge, they can they don't feel like their thought autonomy to make such decisions okay. is threatened in any way. Oh. And the, the yeah, the whole premise of a nudge is that you can easily opt out of it as mm. much as you can accept it. It yeah. shouldn't um, limit your freedom of decision making in any way. Yeah, it's not yeah. an otherwise it doesn't classify itself as a nudge. Okay. Huh. And nudges don't work. Yeah if your preferences are against it. So I don't think you have to worry about yeah. that. <laughs> no, this is just my... Yeah. I'm just, I'm just nuts. But like... No, but I like it because this kind of falls, follows like what I've been reading up on theory as well when nice. it comes to uh, nice. nudges and autonomy. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this is 45 minutes. <laughs> Isn't that uh, your, what you said? Yeah, that's, that's good. I'm not going to take up much more of your time because this has been great. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, like, thank you for... Uh, joining me on this like uh, this is something I'm very curious about because like um, I've been an athlete for a long time uh, and I've struggled with this for a long time and I know people who struggle with this for a long time and uh, definitely like understanding how our environment affects our food choices I Mm -hmm. think is really really important yeah that's great yeah and also like you know it's 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 it can seem almost like a doomsday story when you say like oh this bias exists and we're just wired to mm-hmm. make bad ch- food choices and it, it's completely not the case i also want to emphasize the point that you know we do have ultimate control in in a way like self-control all of these things to protect ourselves from making bad choices all of those things are trainable we right. can learn to, to become better at them. Yeah, of course. But I'm 100% also an advocate of making the environment, changing it so that it's yeah. not such a war field to make yeah. uh, the healthy choices. So I yeah. think that the responsibility lies not only on the individual, but the bigger system. Nice. That's, I think, a great way to wrap this up. And someone's on the door, much. so perfect. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks again. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been a One Deeper Podcast. Thanks for joining, and I hope you learned something. Catch you again next time.